and welcome to Progressive News Network. It is Sunday, May 31, the last day of the month. Uh, I'm your host, Brooke Hines. We have a great show for you tonight. Uh, What a bunch of stuff that is uh, happening. So we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about social unrest. We're going to be talking about everything that has been going on in the last 72 hours uh, from Minneapolis to um, Louisville, Kentucky and Flatbush um, down to Miami and up to Seattle. <clears throat> uh, things are not looking, things are not looking good. So, uh, so we're going to talk about that. We have um, Rick Spizak also has an interview with an author whose name is Deborah Morgan, who will be talking about um, this book that she wrote called Amazing Women. And uh, we are looking forward to that at around eight o'clock. This is a this looks at uh, how someone. The book examines how someone surmounted abuse and drug addiction and turned their life around and is also working to help others. So a little bit of um, uh, a little ray of sunshine in an otherwise uh, very heavy episode that that we're going to be doing tonight. Janine Moloff, of course, will be addressing uh, everything that's been going on. She's a veteran of the Ferguson protest. Uh, Jenny Moloff is out in St. Louis and uh, wants to put her special spin on what is going on in uh, Minneapolis. So I believe she's going to be focusing on Minneapolis. All right. But you know, um, so much has happened. Uh, it's it's really hard to know where to begin. You know, we're in the midst of of a pandemic, and for weeks now we've been talking about uh, issues relating to COVID nineteen or SARS CoV two. We've been talking about <clears throat> uh, all of the different bad moves that have been made with the Trump administration and with uh, the Democratic nomination. And now we have this. It's, it's really a worst case scenario. You know, so we've got, we've got a, a um, plague, essentially, that's raging. We have a looming uh, Great Depression. We have an economic situation that is uh, hurtling towards us that seems to be about the uh, speed or about the uh, magnitude of what we saw in the 30s. We've got over 40 million people out of work because of SARS-CoV-2. And um, and now we have violence. <clears throat> we have social unrest, uh, police riots that are echoing what we saw in the late 60s and early 70s. So let's get right into it. A friend of mine on Twitter tweeted this out. Arash uh, Kalari says that this country was infinitely more prepared to go to war against its own people than defend its people from a pandemic. And nothing could be more true. You know, I've been seeing this thought over and over again this weekend where, you know, we've got... uh, 
people in hospitals who are wearing garbage bags because they don't have um, personal uh, protection, because they don't have PPE that, that they need, the uh, protective equipment that they need. And so they're wearing garbage bags. And people have been contrasting that with what we are witnessing uh, on social media and on television with local police forces that are decked out like military insurgents. Uh, it, it, these, these folks are coming to these protests uh, not just ready to fight, but uh, with the it se- seemingly with the intent to uh, to do some damage, and there's actually been reports of uh, police going through parking garages and slashing the tires of every car in the garage. We've seen reports of uh, plenty of reports of the <clears throat> police forces targeting journalists just shooting uh, rubber bullets at them. This happened live on MSNBC last night. Uh, I've got a clip of uh, the aftermath of that that we'll play in a minute. Um, We've seen, this is something that really bothers me. We've seen a lot of reports of police leaving their cars uh, available and open for people to get into who then people who then, you know, get their guns, get the guns and get the weapons out of the police cars and then set them on fire. We've also seen reports. There's a really funny video that's circulating on, on Twitter that is, uh, outside of a city hall in, um, in the Midwest. I think it's Chicago. It's a giant pile Right before the protest, somebody dumped a giant pile of cement blocks. Just like, here, take one, need one, take one, you know, kind of thing. People are people are getting wise to this. You know, it's not like uh, for a lot of folks, this isn't this isn't their first rodeo. You know, Occupy happened in in 2019. That was nine years ago, uh, and so you know, some people have you know trained under that uh in that protest environment um some people are 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 totally new to this and you know just this is really weird today happens to be the 99th anniversary of the race uh, tulsa race massacre that was featured in the hbo series the watchman uh this is uh when the Watchmen featured this, it was worthy of discussion too, because the Tulsa race massacre, which wiped out Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, is something that has been basically forgotten in American history. It's not something that's that's been talked about. And so a lot of people when when this was featured and the Watchmen were like, hey, what what is what is this? I've never heard of this. You know, and uh I, I know that it was taken as part of a fictive uh uh premise and uh and it just happened to be nonfiction. So uh May thirty First to June 1st in 1921 in Tulsa, 
35 city blocks were destroyed. Uh, nobody really knows how many people were killed. Uh, some people say around 300. Uh, there's no, there's no way to know that. We do know that 6,000 people were displaced. Just about 6,000 people were displaced. Um, and it, uh, it absolutely destroyed a center of wealth for African Americans in uh, in the American Midwest. So I don't know. It's just really odd that that all of this other stuff is kind of happening, you know, almost a hundred years to the day after after that happened. So I know that we're kind of like all feeling around for some kind of contextualization. And the contextualization that I thought we might work with tonight, at least for a little while, is uh, we're all Antifa now, okay? Uh, because Donald Trump has declared that the United States of America will be designating Antifa as a terrorist organization. Antifa is not an organization. Antifa is a you could call it a strategy or a series of tactics or whatever it's uh, it stands for anti-fascist or anti-fascist action. It's a, it's a mode of, of, of interaction. So when you call someone, when you call someone, when, when, when you say someone is Antifa, then really what you're saying is that they're anti-fascist and it's a, uh, it's absolutely remarkable that being anti-fascist, uh, you know, uh, here's, here's another tweet. Uh, only a fascist president would call neo-Nazis very fine people and the people who are fighting back against them terrorists. That's by uh, Ryan Knight on, on Twitter. And that's exactly what's going on here is <clears throat> people who want to push back on, on actual fascism are now according to the Trump administration, uh, considered terrorists. Now, think back to the global war on terror the, uh, uh, that started during the Bush administration, the second Bush administration. And think of all the ways that the idea of terrorism and the word terrorism was misused and mishandled and <clears throat> We wound up with uh, people in Guantanamo Bay and in different black sites, uh, people who had nothing to do with, uh, with the global war on terror. It might have been, you know, in, in a few cases, we had the drivers of different uh, uh, groups, people who were translators, people who had absolutely nothing to do with any kind of organization, but they were rounded up and brought to torture sites, uh, I think for another reason, you know, I think that that served a whole other purpose, you know, because what they did was they brought all of these people, say, to um, uh, Abu Ghraib and tortured them for however long. And those who didn't die, They either went back into society or their families <clears throat> went out into society knowing 
what happened to them and taking that experience with them. So what has happened is they've changed people into something that they weren't. Once you've grabbed people up and you've taken them to a black site and you've tortured them, they aren't who they were before. And, you know, now if they weren't terrorists before, then they are now. And so there has been some speculation around the global war on terror and what was going on with these black sites and uh, our the way that we centered or contextualized terrorism during the Bush administration. The, what that did was create the context, create the the atmosphere, the environment that ensured decades or more of civil war and unrest in the Middle East that we could then profit from by going back in and uh, um, doing deals for for oil and doing deals for infrastructure uh, through big loans and so on and so forth. What we could be seeing here is somewhat the same. You know, if Donald Trump is saying that he is uh, officially designating Antifa as a terrorist organization, that has repercussions. That has a meaning. Um, now, it doesn't have a legal meaning. I mean, in, in, in a way, what he said is absolutely nonsense because Antifa is an organization and you really can't you can't find like the president of Antifa and put them away or the, you know, uh, <clears throat> New Jersey chapters of, of Antifa that, that just doesn't exist. But what does exist <clears throat> are anybody on the street. Okay. Because this is what he's doing. This is what is happening is he's changing the definition of people who are protesting to Antifa and therefore terrorist. So if you are arrested at a protest, uh, there is the chance that instead of being charged with just trespassing or, or, or mischief or breaking a window or whatever it is, vandalism, now you're going to be charged under a federal crime having to do with terrorism. We don't know exactly what this is going to look like yet, um, but, uh, but this is not good. Now, William Barr put out a statement yesterday that I also thought was not good. He he was talking about the interstate uh, uh, movement, interstate movement of of Antifa, and that all of the uh, there was this there was this uh, bogus notion going around yesterday that uh, all of the people arrested in in Minneapolis were were from other places. They were outside agitators. All right, we're going to come back to that. We're going to talk, talk about that in a second. They're all outside agitators. Well, that wasn't true. <laughs> that was patently false. Uh, they weren't outside agitators. They were they were Minnesotans. <laughs> you know? They were they were absolutely from there. But it's important that these guys, you know, couch this as outside agitators because what they're doing is they're giving themselves license to treat people like animals to treat you like like terrorists okay so so when trump says antifa he means everybody on the streets he means anyone who protests or opposes his regime ever this has nothing to do with whether you like antifa or even 
with what Antifa is about. You're not safe because you think you're not Antifa. Okay, you got that? <clears throat> so if you're listening to me and you are sympathetic to the protesters, you saw the uh, George Floyd video, the horrific snuff film where you know they they knelt on uh, knelt on his neck. Uh, the police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on his neck for almost two full minutes after he w- he had stopped breathing after they had confirmed that he didn't have a pulse. Still two minutes longer, just to make sure he was dead. I guess right there. Um, so these the social unrest started before Chauvin was charged. So you got all this social unrest, you got some um, vandalism, you got some fires, you got some some destruction in Minneapolis, and I don't mean to uh, to diminish what happened in Minneapolis. Uh, it is a lot of destruction that we're talking about there. But uh, it wasn't until that happened that Chauvin was charged. And he was charged with third-degree murder, which uh, I've, I, I don't know what that is. And I'm not the only person who doesn't know what that is. Like, there's murder, there's murder in the first degree, there's manslaughter. You know, it's, it's like they had to create this whole other new realm of, of cop murder. Like, when a cop murders something, it's not really murder if a cop does it, so it's third degree. So, you know, that spurred reaction for, for there. Um, Antifa as kind of a philosophy or kind of as a, as a, as a movement, just in case you're not familiar is a, um, Antifa fights for a world. And I'm reading from, a. a social media account, New York Antifa, and at NYC Antifa, this is on Twitter, we believe in and fight for a world free of fascism, racism, sexism, homo and transphobia, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and bigotry. Protests are leaderless. I say all power to all people. Also, these protests are not Antifa. They are about George Floyd and the struggle against white supremacy and police murders and brutality. The focus nonsense that, that we're seeing about outside agitators and Antifa this and Antifa that, that is meant to discredit the protests, all right? Um, it's meant to divide people. It's meant to, you know, make it so that if you're an indivisible member or if you were at the women's march, you know, and you identify with the women's march, then Trump wants you to not identify with anyone who is protesting George Floyd and protesting white supremacy and protesting uh, police violence and uh, police wilding, which is basically what we've been seeing for the last few days. Um, they want to divide you up. You know, they want they want you to think that the people who are protesting are very, very bad people that you would have absolutely nothing to do with. And so you will not identify with them and you will 
condone any type of uh, punishment or violence that can be done to those people. So that's what's going on. Just just in case, just in case you're you're not sure. Um, a lot of people have invoked the uh, Martin Luther King when he said um, that riots are the what did he say? It was uh, the riots. Riots are the voice of the unheard. And so you've seen a lot of people rushing to embrace the language of Martin Luther King. And I think that it's really easy in 2020 to forget what it was like in the, in the 1960s for Martin Luther King and for the civil rights movement. Uh, Bernice King says, uh, says on Twitter, don't act like everyone loved my father. He was assassinated. A 1967 poll reflected that he was one of the most hated men in America. Most hated. Many who quote him now and evoke him to deter justice today would likely hate and may already hate the authentic King, Martin Luther King. I, I absolutely see where she's coming from with that. Um, but I'm absolutely glad that people are embracing. And maybe they don't. Maybe not everybody has a full, you know, graduate student level understanding of, of uh, American civil rights history. And it's really sad that actually that you have to be doing advanced studies to actually get civil rights history, uh, but that is the way that it's taught, taught in American universities, at least the ones that I'm familiar with. It's really, really hard to uh, to learn anything about civil rights history and about slave owning and, and stuff until, until you're in upper division classes. Antifa, like the war on terror, Antifa is being used, it's being put out there intentionally vague. The, Trump wants it to be vague. The uh, establishment, the Republican establishment, the law enforcement establishment, it's very important to them that all of this remain very vague so that it can apply however they say it applies. Um, this is uh, this is scary stuff, you know. And this is also something that, that we've talked on the show. Janine Moloff uh, has many times in the past talked about uh, ex- uh, executive privilege and the unitary executive. Um, uh, when George W. Bush and his lawyers. Uh, started and Dick Cheney started with a unitary executive. I can't imagine that anyone believed in 2008 that whoever was elected president would leave those policies intact. I think all of us believed that we were uh, electing Barack Obama to go into the White House and clean that mess up and not leave this giant door wide open, unitary executive, leave it wide open for the next crazy person 
<laughs> to uh, to be elected to the White House. You know, uh, our system, our American system, is based on checks and balances, and so it, it it's a it just flies in the face of the basic tenets of American democracy that the executive branch has as much power as it does, but they do. So one of the things that, that Obama did with regard to the war on terror and, and terrorism um, was he, he, he had a policy that he could have any American citizen killed without any charge, without any review, except for his own. And now Donald Trump has that power. If he's satisfied that you are a terrorist, he says that he can kill you anywhere in the world, including the United States. Now, this is uh, uh, from the standpoint of the Obama administration. Two Obama aides just reaffirmed – this is I'm, – I'm reading from a from – a, Um, New York Times piece, two of his aides just reaffirmed they believe that American citizens can be killed on the order of the president anywhere, including inside the United States. We trusted, we all loved Barack Obama, we all trusted Barack Obama was a great guy, and he wasn't going to go around killing people, assassinating people in the streets for political beliefs, because he was such a good guy. Um, we never had any kind of, of uh, indication that the next person in the White House wouldn't be as freaking wonderful as Barack Obama. And that's why you don't leave these, these massive doors open. Uh, when the New York Times back in April 2010 first confirmed the existence of Obama's hit list, uh, this is the uh, terrorism hit list, and you know this, this was used uh, many people talked about his uh, Tuesday meetings where they went over the, the kill list and they did all of the uh, drone strikes and stuff. Uh, this all pertains to this to this uh, first policy set out in the Bush administration. Um, first confirmed the existence of Obama's hit list, it made clear just what an extremist power this is, noting Quote, it is extremely rare, if not unprecedented, for an American to be approved for targeted killing. The New York Times quoted a Bush intelligence official as saying, quote, he did not know of any American who was approved for targeted killing under the former president. That's, that's under the Bush administration. When the existence of Obama's hit list was first reported, uh, by the Washington Post of Dana Priest, she wrote that, quote, the list includes three Americans. This is radical stuff. What Bush did and then what Obama expanded on is, is absolutely radical. We hadn't seen that in, a, in American presidential history up until that point. And now we've got Donald Trump in the White House putting out this 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 uh, very vague policy of if you're Antifa, you're a terrorist. So if you're Antifa and you're a terrorist, um, William Barr would like to talk to you. 
William Barr, the Attorney General, William Barr, put out a statement on riots and domestic terrorism uh, today. So this is a press release. This is a statement that he did today. This is uh, his honor, the Honorable William P. Barr, said, quote, with the rioting that is occurring in many of our cities around the country, the voices of peaceful and legitimate protests have been hijacked by violent radical elements. Groups of outside radicals and agitators are exploiting the situation to pursue their own separate, violent, and extremist agenda. He then says, it is time to stop watching the violence and to, and to confront and stop it. Um, the urgent work that needs to be done is, uh, he says, Federal law enforcement actions will be directed at apprehending and charging the violent radical agitators who have hijacked peaceful protests and are engaged in violence in violations of federal law to identify criminal organizations and instigators and to coordinate federal resources with our state and local partners. Federal law enforcement is using our existing network of 56 regional FBI Joint Terrorism Task Forces, JTTF. You're going to be hearing a little bit more of that on the news for quite some time. Um, This is gobsmacking. Uh, It was reported in The Nation yesterday. Ken Ken Klippenstein uh, got an exclusive. Uh, It appears that that he got a, a whistleblower to divulge some information. Uh, that the U.S. military is monitoring protests in seven states. Now, this is this is Amer- This is so different from you know just calling in the National Guard when there is trouble in a city. That's not what this is. Uh, he says U.S. military is monitoring protests according to the Defense Department and uh, D- uh, Defense Department documents obtained exclusively by the nation. In addition to Minnesota, where a Minneapolis police officer killed George Floyd, uh, the military is tracking uprisings in New York, Ohio, Colorado, Arizona, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Tennessee and Kentucky, really? Um, According to a Defense Department situation report. Notably, only Minnesota has requested National Guard support. The documents were originally stored on a blah, 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 blah. This is how they got the the, the, uh, the documents were not classified, and then they were classified. So this is kind of hinky. You know, the, the person who got the documents and passed them on to uh, Ken Kilbenstein is uh, – ostensibly, and they go to great lengths to, to point this out, is it was ostensibly operating as under the law because they weren't classified for a while. And then they were moved to a classified server. So it goes to great lengths to, uh, to uh, say that. One document pertaining to the Minnesota National Guard uh, describes one operation's purpose. It is, quote, augment Minnesota State Patrol civil disturbance operations with a show of force. Uh, Further down, it shows, uh, these memos show that uh, National Guard members have been authorized for, quote, weapon status red 
meaning that their magazines are loaded, but the safety is on. They've got the safety on. The document seems particularly concerned not just with harm to civilians, but also potential damage to property, which it refers to several times. For example, the assessment line notes that the guard will, quote, ensure the safety of citizens and property, unquote. Uh, further down in this, so far we're talking about the National Guard, but further down in this, they're starting to talk about active duty military. In addition to the National Guard, Trump has reportedly considered deploying active duty military. Benjamin Haas, a D.C.-based attorney with expertise in national security law, uh, stressed the dangers of this course of action. He says, even if involving the active duty military is legal and the circumstances on the ground demand further resources, it may not, this has got to be the understatement of the freaking millennium, it may not be wise as a matter of policy and optics to put military active duty on the ground in the in Kentucky or Tennessee. Um, none of this is good. None of this, none of this is good. None of this is addressing PPE or or the uh, situation where Americans can't go to the hospital now that they've uh, all been, now that we've all been exposed to this virus um, through these uh, protests, you know, we've got 40 million people out of work and counting. You know, these are people who do not have insurance. They do not, they, they don't have the ability to pay the rent. This is all of these stresses and all of these heightened contradictions <laughs> Um, uh, in these material conditions, all of this is coming to bear on what's going on all across the United States. You know, <clears throat> you've got people out there who are absolutely furious, and a lot of people have have made some hay about like, uh, uh, Oh, there's there's lots of white kids out there and white suburban kids. I've heard that over and over again. Um, do you think that's fair? Do you think it's fair to say that if you're um, not black, that you don't have any right to a sense of, of outrage at social injustice. I don't, you know, I think, I think we need to stop doing that. I think we need to stop looking at the demographics of the people on the ground and saying that, that some people's grievances are legitimate and some people's aren't. I think that right now we're at a time where all of these injustices are kind of converging and there's a really good, quote here. There's um, uh, Margaret Kennedy, uh, Kimberly was on Katie Halper's uh, podcast yesterday or the day before. And I'll, I'll get that link and throw it up in the show notes. But she did. Uh, here's, here's a little bit of what Margaret Kim Kimberly had to say. It's very important. Old protest, but I am convinced they did not 
We'll talk about peaceful protests, but I am convinced they did not finally arrest that cop until that precinct was burned down in Minneapolis. People are standing up. That is the last thing they want. It's scaring them. People are in movement because of George Floyd's murder, but it could turn into people being in movement about all kinds of things. There could be a general strike. People could start demanding peace. Who knows what people could demand? They need to be afraid of us. You don't know where this could lead. So they have to find a way to delegitimize this very legitimate race. So that's a mashup of a lot of the different things that she had to say on the show. And I think that a lot of that is uh, very interesting and very pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, Something really big has happened in the last few days. I mean, just in addition to, you know, all of the chaos and the uh, political mayhem, uh, Something is changing, something is turning, something is evolving in our social body, you know, if I can talk about it in that way. Uh, we've, got, we've got people, I think, who never would have dreamed that they would find themselves in the middle of, of street violence with uh, wilding and rioting policemen. I think that in the last 72 hours, that a lot of people's view on what goes on in the United States has changed dramatically. Um, there was a really good article in Salon. I went to Salon just to be like, okay, what are those people saying? Uh, I know that I've shared Salon stuff in the past, and it's just been a really long time since there's been much to, you know, follow there. But Andrew O'Hare has a not a really good piece. It's a, a, a you know, above the fold, you might say, uh, a nationwide police riot. Is our outrage against violence pointed at the real perpetrators? He says, amid the chaos and confusion of America's days of rage, our lawless authoritarian police show their true colors. Really, really good piece. Uh, there's quite a bit of throat clearing in it, but uh, he's he's really getting into some some nitty gritty here. And one of the things that I really liked. was his insistence on talking about this in terms of a police riot and that in that way it resembled the protest out the night outside of the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. This was reported in the Washington Post uh, and elsewhere that what happened in Chicago during the convention, and this is kind of funny because, you know, people have been talking about the Democratic Convention in 2020, and before COVID came along, uh, there was a lot of speculation as to, you know, whether a contested convention could lead to the kinds of unrest that we're seeing in uh, all over the place now. Uh, 72 hours ago, they would have said, I wonder if we'll see the kind of violence that we saw in 68, right? Um, And now that's just kind of, uh, you know, we have have moved right past that. We've blown through that um, finish line right there. Uh, 
there's something about the possibly excessive, possibly regrettable protest or about their ambiguous racial dynamic um, issues that until Saturday seem to dominate the chattering class of social media discourse. It is about America's police, which increasingly resemble a lawless authoritarian third force, largely unconstrained by political leaders, heedless of their own supposed rules, and internally compromised by far-right or, or white supremacist ideology. That's some hardcore stuff. He says, the mask has been ripped off from American law enforcement as an autonomous national institution that observes no laws beyond its own internal tribal codes. We must face the, the threat directly rather than tiptoeing gingerly around the monolithic power of police unions, those FOP guys, uh, while engaging in airless, hair-splitting debates about the ethical dimensions of what disenfranchised people are doing in the streets. He says he's not trying to contextualize this, um, but he is. I mean, whenever we write about something, we're, we're putting it into a context. He's not trying to do that bad kind of contextualization where he's taking an um, uh, issue of uh, violence against African Americans and uh, reappropriating that for another use. That's not what he's doing here. We're staying within we're staying within that particular context. And he says that his point is that George Floyd's death was not just another shocking individual tragedy. Uh, or another far too clear illustration of the problem of police violence and police racism. It happened when it happened after three and a half years of a corrupt and criminal president who thrives on vicious racial discord and has eagerly tried to demolish the federal government from within and undermine the already crumbling infrastructure of democracy which is what we just basically talked about with the Unitarian Executive and stuff. Um, it happened after most of the country has been under lockdown for two months because the corrupt and criminal president has so spectacularly failed to respond to the worst viral pandemic of the century. It happened after 100,000 people have died and perhaps 40 million have lost their jobs. And when it's clear that the death and illness and economic devastation have overwhelmingly and disproportionately affected lower income black and brown people in our cities who are also, and this is the big important part, these people are also disproportionately likely to be essential workers who cannot protect themselves by staying home. Now, this is one of the reasons why when I see these gatherings of protesters and, you know, it looks like there's like a lot of, you know, white middle-class kids out there. Uh, I'm like, hell yeah, solidarity, you know, like uh, they're not staying home. They're not staying home to protect themselves. They're not staying, you know, within the confines of, of a um, hermetically sealed apartment out in the suburbs. They're actually going out, and uh, standing alongside the uh, communities who have who are experiencing this this loss, and so he goes on and he talks about the demographics. Let's see. 
If you feel compelled to construct a hierarchy of righteousness based on zip code or skin color or to suggest that white activists, uh, anarchists or otherwise, have no right to feel outrage about George Floyd or social injustice or the condition of America, then go right ahead, he says. If we, refer, if we refer to Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous comment that riots are the voice of the unheard, then I would suggest that the range of people who now feel unheard in contemporary America cannot be contained to any specific demographics. Holy shit. That is spot on. We're all feeling this right now. And uh, uh, and I can't condone violence of, of of any kind, right? You know, because that's not that's not what we do here. But uh, but you look at what's been going on in the last couple of days, and there's some there's some honest to goodness real uh, strains of of uh, of stuff coming out of this. I'm, I can't think of uh, the word that I'm looking for. Uh, it's really, really clear that the police are um, they don't give any kind of fuck about whether they're filmed committing crimes. You know, what set this off was, uh, you know, somebody somebody being murdered in broad daylight, uh, a black man being murdered by a white police officer in broad daylight while three other officers stood around and somebody filmed it. And they didn't care, just didn't care. Um that should be concerning all of us because in the same way that they didn't care that they were being filmed uh, during doing the murder, they also don't care about what's going on uh, during the riots or during the protests. So you've got, and I think I've got the, I think I've got the clip here. Maybe I don't. Um, let's see if it's over here. Uh, so the so the police have actually been attacking and targeting um, journalists, and that's that's not something you do. You don't attack the journalists and you don't attack the medics. Like that's a war crime. And it, 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 if this was a war, if we were in another country, it's absolutely outside of the bounds of acceptability. But we saw it last night live on MSNBC. And here's a clip uh, kind of explaining what happened, what went down, and um, what to think. Close to the police, and they fired on us. Uh, there were flashbangs that came out. There were canisters that came out. And you saw they actively aimed their guns at people. And again, Joshua, I will put my career on this. There was nothing at any stage that was not. I, I will tell you this. I've been here now for three days. I have not seen this level of aggression at all. we got sirens now. Uh, they are moving now. They're moving closer, Pierce. 
they have split the they have split the crowd. The, uh, the the half of the march was in front and has moved forward. You are now hearing sirens or people moving in. I'm not sure what that is. That's an ambulance that's going by. Uh, but that is the situation now. I will tell you. I'm gonna ask uh, Miguel to just take a quick spin around. Take a quick look at this, Miguel. We got we got protesters now moving closer in. The police continue to fire. <laughs> Do it, do it. Like they're daring the state troopers to fire on them again? Is that, am I hearing that right? All right, guys, I got it. Yeah, I got it. Hold on. Okay, while he was giving that report, and he was, he was, uh, this is um, uh, Velshi from MSNBC. While he was giving that report, he literally gets shot in the leg with a rubber bullet. Okay, um, and then he he goes on um, he goes on and explains it in, in another clip. It's amazing here what actually happens because, as you heard in that clip, he the the reporter's trying to make sense of what the police are doing in a community policing context. And then they shoot him in the leg, and he's a journalist. He's a national journalist, and they just open fire on on the on the crew standing there. Now this is after he says that what had happened was that there had been a march, and that the uh, police used uh, tear gas and smoke bombs to separate the 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 group of people into two groups, you know, we call that cuddling. So they're, they're trying to corral one group into one area and one group in, into another area and, uh, and then break it up further from there. Uh, we saw in terms of rubber bullets yesterday, we saw uh, a lot of women being hit in the face. So they were aiming at the face. There was a photojournalist who who lost her vision, lost an eye. <laughs> she was shot in the eye with a freaking rubber bullet. Um, a lot of people are saying that the police are are literally aiming, literally aiming for your face, uh, and they're actually seem to be. Uh, being particularly aggressive with women. So I've seen all kinds of video clips of women being just, you know, women who are just sitting on the sidelines, you know, a cop coming up and just kicking her down for no reason at all. Uh, Here is, this is the last thing I'm going to share before we go into the little lighter session section. segment that I have with uh, Deborah Morgan. Uh, here's just a, a short list of things that were going on in Raleigh, North Carolina last night. Um, this this uh, de- uh, protester says that uh, cops went apeshit on the crowd from the start. They deployed tear gas and rubber bullets uh, before literally anything had happened. Cops tear gassed high school students and children. The crowd was mixed to start with, with children as young as two years old exposed to uh, CS gas from the cops. The police stood by and did nothing as other fascist bastards vandalized a LGBTQ bar and harassed people at the LGBT center where an aid station was set up. 
Raleigh police deployed expired CS gas provided by the Cary, North Carolina Police Department, that's Cary, C-A-R-Y, Police Department, which runs the risk of poisoning those uh, exposed to cyanide. You know, so, so they shoot the canisters out at you, someone picks up the canister and they look at it and they're like, oh, this is from like 1978 or whatever. And, you know, they're already dangerous chemicals, but when they start to degrade, they degrade into other dangerous chemicals that are not intended to be the ones that, you know, that are used. And by the way, tear gas is not legal to be used uh, in uh, uh, confrontations in, again, in global contexts. It's considered chemical warfare, um, but we see it here in the United States all the time. Okay, continuing on with the, this report from Raleigh, it was only after this, with the tear gas, um, was only after all this happened when this the, this crowd that was having a peaceful protest got gassed and and uh, you know just uh, piled on by the by the police. It was only after that that the first window got broken and property damage occurred, and so they're presenting this as you know, the, the crowd was attacked and then the crowd responded. He says, if you spend a single solitary second hand wringing about a burned out CVS that was notorious for following black customers around inside it or a boutique version of the Dollar General that sits beneath luxury apartments built where low income seniors used to live, you're an asshole. If you concern troll about how you support the protesters but don't like how they're protesting, you're a double asshole. And if you're fine with Raleigh Police Department going jackboots out on mostly peaceful crowd from the jump, I genuinely doubt your humanity. Last night was the beginning, but it will not be the end. None of us are free until all of us are free. And no, we cannot vote our way out of this. Which is really sad, you know, because, uh, um, you know, we, you've got the, the mango mangler over on one side, and then you've got, uh, you know, nothing will fundamentally change <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> it's not very inspiring. Um, so much, so much has changed in just the last few hours. Yeah, you know, just the last few days. I mean, 70, 72 hours. Honest to goodness, this is we're we're not. We have become something else in the last little bit. That's called uh, Hegel called that offheben. Uh, offheben is when you know you got a cucumber and you want a pickle, and uh, a cu a, a pickle isn't quite a cucumber. You know, it's it's changed into something that's offheben. And uh, that's what's happened to us in the last 72 hours. We are not the same uh, society that we were before this started. We are now something different that has a whole other uh, set of contexts and set of, of circumstances that define us. And we don't even know. We have the uncertainty of not knowing what those circumstances are. All of this is up in the air. All of this is changing by the minute. And uh, 
We'll keep you posted. I hope you stay posted, and I hope that you uh, continue to get your news from places other than uh, the, the television. Maybe just keep that on in the background while you read uh, or, you know, go through social media. Uh, it's very important that uh, that we are turning our eyes towards uh voices that are actually giving us the truth and it's becoming more and more difficult to find. Okay. So we've, so, you know, just to, just to review, we've got uh, federal law enforcement is, is going after protesters, smearing them all at uh, putting them all under this one label of Antifa, uh, calling them terrorists. Now they are legitimized to do anything they want to, to these, to these, People under the the uh, rubric of terrorism, that includes NSA spying. So you know they they've also said it at press conferences that they are doing uh, uh, that they're intercepting communications of people at, at protests. So you know maybe exercise if you're going to a protest, maybe exercise some um, operational security and leave your phone at home. You know. Maybe just leave it in the car or something. Uh, you know, just exercise uh, a little bit more caution than you normally would. Uh, we're going to take a little break from this heavy stuff. We've got Deborah Morgan. Let me make sure that's right. Deborah Morgan, who is talking about a. Uh, a a different kind of transformation in a more positive way. And uh, we're going to do that palate cleansing with this. And then we will be back at 8.30 with Ginny and Moloff. All right, you guys, take care. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune and honor to speak to Miss Deborah Morgan, one of the lead authors of an amazing book called Simply Amazing Women. Deborah, welcome. Thank you. Hi. How are you doing? This is a second appearance, if I'm not mistaken, because you are one amazing woman indeed. Even before the book Thank came you. out, you were an amazing woman. You know, so many people these days, they have excuses. Cut themselves so much slack, and, and they do, whether it be destructive behaviors, or they harm others. or But, yeah. but you are one of the persons who... Despite trouble, despite uh, a very complicated uh, family experience, you were able to battle back and really take charge of your own life. And that alone, my friend, that alone is is absolutely remarkable. Deborah, uh, this is so wonderful. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What? Um, well, let's see. I, I, if I tried to share, you know, everything. I will be doing an autobiography um, titled Trapped, and that will go into it a lot more. Um, uh-huh. But I was adopted by my grandmother. I, did, I was not raised by my mother. My mother was extremely abusive, and I had, you know, siblings uh, that she had after me. Um, me, she just didn't want to be a mother at that point. In fact, with me, I don't she never wanted to be a mother, you know. And um, so basically I was forced to um, recognize her as my sister my life, throughout my life. 
and her kids as my nieces and nephews. That alone begins a line pattern, and so that's why I bring it up. Um, you know, you learn to lie. Sure. You're sure. you're in a dysfunctional line environment, and you are also in an environment where you don't have any control. Mm-hmm. You know, so I would not have control of my own life and the things that, um, you know, that happened that might be, you know, say, life events that, that could have sent me possibly, possibly, to another direction. Mm-hmm. You know, positive things. And so, and negative things as well. But, um, so when I got to be a teenager, I done with not rebelling. I started drinking at uh, Lord's uh, eighth grade. Wow. So, yeah, we would <laughs> we would mix all kinds of alcohol in a mayonnaise jar, you know, and <laughs> walk to school, <laughs> walk to school and drink it, and uh, which is pretty pretty bad, you know, when you got vodka and wild turkey and you know in the same thing it just yeah it doesn't do much for you but you know that was the first time I got drunk and after that there would be many 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 more so by the time I got to be in high school I was carrying a bottle of alcohol under the seat of my car when I was old enough to drive and I was just Seriously, I was probably the most rotten teenager in the world. But I drank for, you know, years. And then I had my daughter. So then that goes into the adult. But the things that that I can remember, the main things for right now anyway, I was in track and I was going to go to state that year. And my grandmother, we got in trouble at school having alcohol and they didn't pull me out of track at school but she did and I mean even my coach called and said she's going to state she's the only distance runner we've got you know yeah I really wish you wouldn't pull her out and of course I begged and pleaded and uh, she wouldn't do it so at that point that was another you know um dart on the board that after the line and you know abuse in my childhood and have to be around my mom you know and all the things that had happened and then me being rebellious that was the one thing I was doing sports that were good mm-hmm. so she took the power away I had no power in that situation and as I got into high school I ended up getting pregnant. She was a deputy sheriff, the first one in her county in Colorado. In fact, almost in Colorado. And so my life was around, you know, the police and sheriff department. So you would think that, you know, they would scare you in a lot of ways. But, of course, they didn't because they were friends, Mm -hmm. you know. So later on down the road, of course, her name would be something that would be brought up, you know, continuously um, throughout any time I got in trouble. Literally, we took all the flags at the <laughs> the cemetery on Memorial Day. Like, since it's Memorial Day, I remember 
I took all the flags off of all the graves on Memorial Day. And I mean, you know, these are the kinds of things. I mean, it would be anything. It didn't matter. And it didn't matter what kind of thing it was. If it was going to get negative attention or positive attention, it got some attention. And so I paid her back, you know, for pulling me out of track. And then when I got pregnant, I said, well, I wanted to keep it. I was almost 18 years old. It would have been really young. And but for me, maybe I don't know. Again, would have been a good thing. Would have been a bad thing. I don't know. Trajectory that my life was going to go through, you know, the things that I were going to go through. But it was my decision at that point, I felt. And she absolutely forbid it. So I ended up having an abortion got through the abortion and I was presented by the guy I dated in high school who eventually down the road at some point I would end up marrying um, out of pure you know I don't know like the prince and the you know white shining armor came along at a time when I needed you know somebody to rescue me from a bad situation and uh, I would end up marrying him down the road and having a baby with him. But at that point in time, I was presented with um, a puppy. That was to take the place of what I had just gone through. So there was no, you know, sympathy, no control of any decisions that were mine. And, um, you know, each thing that happens in that situation, especially when you've grown up in it, um, causes you to continue, you know, it just continuously, you have to keep burying it, you know, mm-hmm. and it's going to come out someday. It's going to come out whether it's in, you know, bad behavior or whatever it is, it's it's going to come out. And mine happened to be um, a mental disorder but the um, addiction was first let's talk let's talk uh, now about the changes that you made in your life with help but ultimately Mm -hmm. no matter how good the help is you have to make the decision to improve your own life right What, what can you tell us about that uh you know, obviously you, you reached a difficult point and you had to make a decision. Talk about that, how you came to the decision to change your life. Well, the decision ended up being um, not mine. I mean, an addict, they don't ask to be one, but they never want to give that up. It seems like an addict will just start making mistakes no matter what drug of choice they are doing and um, there's only two ways out but at the time you don't think about it that way because you're too busy lying and trying to be in your addiction so I was writing my own prescriptions a doctor had me on opiates for quite a while after a surgery and actually left me on opiates for a few months And they began to make me feel like I was normal, which is something I never really felt before. You know, um, I was either too high or too low. 
And that was without anything, you know, more of a manic and depressive type situation when I was younger, all the way up. And so I just had my son, I think, nine months before the surgery. And then I got on the sur- then I had the surgery. And then doctors, there were two of them, they kept me on pain pills for probably another nine months after that. And um, so I started writing my own prescriptions. I can't remember right now what, I know what caused me to do it was the sheer um, being terrified that I was going to run out of pain pills. Mm-hmm. I mean, that there was going to be nothing to hold me together. And because um, when something started to bother me or come up that possibly happened as an adult or as, you know, as a child, um, then I would take a pill, you know. Mm-hmm. Um so by the time I had written prescriptions in probably, we had quite a few counties in Colorado, and I think I'd written in six different counties, I couldn't tell you, but would make a guess that the amount of prescriptions I had to have written would have been 100 at least. Wow. And I was taking 100 Percocet in a week. My goodness. So I went, yeah. So, you know, in those days, they didn't have watermarks on them. They didn't, you know, send you to the pharmacy with a prescription where they could double-check it. And they didn't really double-check it. I mean, this is back in, you know, the early 90s. Mm-hmm. They just weren't, you know. It was like that wasn't something that they saw very often. Mm-hmm. if any and so I just started writing I wasn't afraid to write them but then I started to get to the point where I didn't realize it but I was making small mistakes you know whether it was through body language when I went to the pharmacy and, and it looked kind of suspicious or whether it was a pharmacy that did start checking or whether it was just me you know doing something dumb that was part of the you know something that I'd always done but I didn't realize I made a mistake and so um, fixing my life was going to come to me because they allowed me to leave the store with a prescription they called um, the cops they got my uh, license plate number and uh, probably I don't know four five weeks later they showed up at my door in the evening and asked me, you know, was that the car I drove and everything. My husband had no idea for the whole time. And this was the same person that had gotten me pregnant in high school. We were now married. And I had a little boy and had been doing this for probably, I don't know, a year and a half. And you hide bottles everywhere, places that you, you know, you know where they are. Um, but, I mean, you never lose track of one pill. 
you know, especially when you have to write prescriptions and keep track of those and all the lies that you tell yourself and everybody else. And so when they came, they they said, we want you to come down and do a writing sample. And so the next day, I had to, you know, get an attorney and, you know, I was going to go down there and he explained what could happen and it was a felony and, you know, the whole thing. And when I got down to the sheriff, you know, the police department in a completely different county than where I live, um, the, the, guy, the sergeant that did my writing sample, he said to me, um, he said, I know that you have written more prescriptions than just this one. And he said, and I, I just, I, I don't know what made, I don't know what made me just tell him. I said, it's me. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't need to do a writing sample. You know, it's, it's me. Um, and I, and I don't know what to do about it. And he said, well, if you agree to go to rehab, then, you know, we can work it through the court and you probably won't have to do any jail time. But you will have to do, you know, random UAs for a period of time and, and counseling and stuff like that. And so that was the person, that was that one person that always comes around that just said and gave me a chance. And I took it. And so many people don't. And then they end up dead, you know, mm-hmm. or stuck, or in a position, or losing their children, losing their families, um, losing everything, you know. So this is when you um, found the energy, the enthusiasm, and the support to turn your life around? Basically, when I went in there, when I got there, as an addict, well, you know, you're still, you're still thinking, even if you don't know you are, you're still lying. You're lying to yourself. You're still, you know, in that same behavior. You don't change just because you say you're going to go to rehab. And so when you get to rehab, the last the last thing you do is take your drug of choice. It doesn't matter if it's alcohol if it was heroin, if it was whatever. Mine was opiates, so of course, you know, I took three, you know, Percocet and said, okay, here we go. And, you know, when you walk in, there's, it was great. It was a place that was connected to a hospital, and it would end up being a place that I wouldn't want to leave, you know, and I would continue to go back twice a week for longer than I was required to and I after I got into court I had to go through all that before I actually you know was able to go into rehab Um, but it was quick I mean they didn't waste any time so I was probably in rehab four or five days after I was supposed to give a writing sample and the judge said you need to complete your rehab and after that you need to do UAs for, you know, um, I think it was a year and a half, and you need to go to 
aftercare, you know, of some sort for a year and a half, I think. Same thing as the random U.A.s. And then you come back, and if you, you know, done everything, then we'll allow your records to be sealed. And so to seal your records is, is a big deal, you know, because that means that they, when they seal those records, people who do background checks and stuff, it doesn't constantly keep coming up. They don't see it, you know. Um, I was arrested, so they might have seen that for a period of time. But when I got to rehab, I, I thought to myself, oh, I can get through this. I mean, this place looks great, you know. It was really pretty, and it looked really nice. And they came over, and they went through my bag, and I couldn't have anything. Nothing with alcohol in it. Nothing with, ca- you know, you could have cigarettes, but nothing with caffeine, alcohol, anything like that. And they started walking me down the, you know, walkway and took me into the building. And when that door shut, you know, the heavy hospital door uh, type door all I can remember is feeling like am I ever going to get out of here you know am I in jail and the next thing I heard was one side had no windows at all but you could hear people in there you know screaming and you know what I mean I didn't know if that's where I was going and on the other side, there was windows, and it, nobody was in there screaming, you know. I had no idea where I was going to end up, because I didn't know anything. I had no idea. Never even thought about rehab. You know, that's not what you think about. You don't think about, <laughs> you don't think about getting better. You just think about doing it the rest of your life. That's what you think. Um... So I got in there and started to, you know, I had to do all this, take, you know, they take your weight, they take everything, do the whole doctor thing. And they don't take you off of opiates, like, right away. Um, they, they wean you off. And they weaned me off with uh, Darvon. So they began, they began to control my pills so for the first few days it seemed like this isn't so bad you know because I still had you know opiates in my system and so I was in a meeting and I didn't want to talk I didn't want to participate I didn't want to do anything and um, I just wanted to get through it you know and get through this whole nasty situation and go back out and do what I was doing again. If you can believe that. You know, I look back on it and I think to myself, what were you thinking? You know, and so I just would sit in this chair with my feet off the floor. I mean, literally like in a ball in this chair with my hands crossed, with my arms crossed. Which, of course, arms crossed is the worst kind of body language. Sure. 
we've seen a lot of people do it in the last few years and it's it just means that you know you're keeping something inside or you're hiding something or whatever but you are not fully open and so finally probably three days in when they I mean they were taking me off medication slowly but I was still feeling the effects of Percocet and now beginning to feel the effects of the withdrawal that I was going to go through you know when they finally got me off of them and uh, they weren't going to keep me on very long so they kept going around the room and everybody would tell you know what they had done and, and how they how they felt or they would ask them questions or they would get on them if they didn't answer a question honestly you know I mean they weren't messing around good, good. they they were good. right they weren't they, they weren't nice you know they weren't like oh what kind of day you haven't you know no you know they were there to do a job and they were going to do it and they did they they did a good job and with most everyone they at least left there clean and a lot of people I would continue to see after you know it was all this time I would say you know I'm mad you know I'm I'm ticked off I'm this I'm that you know every word that I used and and when I started using them in there you know he'd say what's wrong with you today and I'd say I'm mad he'd say mad is not a feeling I couldn't name I couldn't even name or use a word for one feeling. I could I couldn't say angry. I couldn't say, you know, I'm feeling terrible. I feel like this. I feel like that. I couldn't. I had no words. It was like my whole life, I never developed an actual feeling. You know, something that somebody would say, oh, I'm sorry you're feeling that way, you know. Um, you didn't hear that in my family. And, you know, my, my great-grandma lived with us, and she was that one person that I could hold on to. She was the one person that probably left something there that I would be able to use like a tool to finally start to pull something together. And so as I went through it, I got through the withdrawal, which that was tough, um, the headaches from no caffeine were horrible. I mean, they were bad. I had no idea what that was going to be like, you know. Just the stupid stuff that you think of, like you could never get anything to drink unless you asked for it. You couldn't watch TV um, after 7 o'clock and there was only certain shows that anybody could watch, which I never watched anything. Um, I spent a lot of time out on the patio, which was nice to have but during the time you would end up going to an AA meeting and listen to the people stand up and tell their story and you know you'd meet people that were going through the same thing that you were going through maybe it was alcoholism maybe it was not alcoholism but it didn't matter you know there was NA people from Narcotics Anonymous and there was AA people and I mean everybody in there was going through some form of what I was and had been where I was. And they all understood. So finally, I had all these people who understood 
and now I was starting to learn what feelings were and all those feelings would start to come out you know the anger and the frustration and the depression and you know and and it would it would you know one day you'd be crying and the next day you'd be angry and you know just not able to even think of anything but anger well it must have been a tremendous relief to finally should we say clear the decks and speak your truth uh, it was. It was. Well, that's it was wonderful. nice to know who I was. You know, yeah. I mean, I was never going to really know that. And seriously, up until the time that I was fifty-four years old, I finally got rid of that. That last, um, kind of like a bunch of wheat. You know, <laughs> that last group of things that were still hanging on, um, like abandonment issues you know stuff like that mm-hmm. um after my husband had heart trouble i i found out that there was just still this stuff that i needed to get rid of at 54 i had finally gotten rid of what i felt like was all that baggage after all this so being clean 26 years you deal with something all the time. Well, good for you. Talk to us a little bit about this book you're featuring in one of the co-authors. Yeah, Simply Amazing Women is a book that I happen to be asked to be on Casey Armstrong's uh, radio show. It was WMAP, and I've I've been on quite a few radio shows and, and talking about this or fibromyalgia, which I have now. And at the end of it, they brought up the fact that they were doing a book. And he said, your story is a story I want in that book. So, you know, here I am, somebody who's struggling, you know, to try and figure out how to write a book at that time. And that was like a year ago. And I've been trying to build, you know, just a following for five years. And he asked and said that, you know, each person in there would be a lead author and there'd be 11, probably 11 women. There ended up being 13. I happen to be chapter three, which is, I guess, a good chapter. And every chapter, every chapter shows how much somebody can take such a, uh, whatever the situation was for them and how terrible it was for them and turn it around and make it positive. It's a pretty amazing book. I mean, it's inspirational. And what do we need right now? In in the world we're in right now, especially with, you know, COVID and everything, it, it seems like we need to hear something good, not something bad. Deborah, this has been a wonderful, wonderful interview. And you, you truly are a simply amazing woman. Thank, Thank you, you so much. And congratulations on bringing yourself up from a person who had tremendous trouble to a woman who is setting example every day how people can be Thank strong. You. That you have found your own inner strength and that's that's that is an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, Rick, for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. We'll have you on again. Thanks again. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Bye. All right, you guys, that was Deborah Morgan. 
uh, author of a fabulous new book about amazing women. And we're about to bring on another amazing woman, Janine Moloff. <clears throat> and I have this clip. I have a, we have a regular Janine's intro, but I'm going to play something special for tonight as we bring on Janine. This is a little piece of uh, another amazing woman from a protest in Minneapolis. And I think it's important for us to hear her. Power. I don't give a damn if they burn down Target. Because Target should be on the streets with us calling for the justice that our people deserve. Where was AutoZone at the time when Philando Castile was shot in a car, which is what they actually represent? Where were they? So if you are not coming to the people's defense, then don't challenge us when young people and other people who are frustrated and instigated by the people you pay, you are paying instigators to be among our people out there throwing rocks, breaking windows, and burning down buildings. So young people are responding to that. They are enraged, and there's an easy way to stop it. Arrest the cops. Charge the cops. Charge all the cops. Not just some of them. Not just here in Minneapolis. Charge them in every city across America where our people are being murdered. Charge them everywhere. That's the bottom line. Charge the cops. Do your job. Do. All right, guys. That was a. Uh... Uh, amazing activist out of uh, Minneapolis, and we've got Janine Moloff on the line. Janine, how are you this week? I'm surviving. Uh, I'm just going to start in on my report because we've had protests here in St. Louis, too. Uh, again, being home to Ferguson, it's nothing new to us, unfortunately. By now, the entire globe is once again familiar with the mass protest in the U.S. following the police murder of George Floyd, specters of Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Emadou Diallo, Eric Garner, Alton Sterling, and Michael Brown flood our mass consciousness as the silent majority of white society hopes this latest episode, if you will, of mass grief and rage blows over. As a white ally, I'm disgusted by the systemic injustice and the accompanying equally systemic indifference to the daily humiliation and violence suffered by communities of color, especially the black community. Unfortunately, the police have yet to face any meaningful accountability for their systemic brutality, and the white majority either doesn't seem to care or is too cowardly to defend our black brothers and sisters. So the St. Louis Post-Dispatch did a big article on how protesters in St. Louis blocked the interstate highway for hours. And that was overnight, and it was updated. So basically, protesters in St. Louis, several were Ferguson activists and veterans of Ferguson, took to the streets and early Friday night and into, Sunday, into Saturday morning. And they were protesting in solidarity with this latest police murder of, of George Floyd. And we all know the story by now. He couldn't breathe. The knee was on his neck. St. Louis protesters blocked a highway for three hours, Interstate 44. And downtown in St. Louis, there's, you can actually access multiple highways, and this is the one they chose. Uh, and then there was a fire that was started in the road, and a few people broke into an Amazon Prime truck and a FedEx truck. 
one individual climbed in the FedEx trucks um, in between the FedEx trucks. They had two trailers, and unfortunately that individual died as the truck drove away, and this was around 3 a.m. Um, police said early Saturday that the circumstances of that, of that death were being investigated, and they were using their accident reconstruction team. So there was a man on Twitter who said he witnessed the man's death and also that several protesters tried to rescue the victim from the truck as the truck drove away. And the tweet does appear to show the victim caught between the truck's two massive trailers. FedEx um, did tell the St. Louis Post-Dispatch they were cooperating with the investigation and they offered a quote which you know, once again, I'm not even going to bother to read. Um, once again, that truck just should have stopped. So basically, we have this march, and, and, and really, a lot of whites are scratching their heads, and they claim they don't understand because they don't want to understand. This march here in St. Louis, as well as all over the U.S., was to basically bear witness once again to racist police and the age-old police-sponsored, what can only be called genocide, of the black community. And one of the um, leaders in the St. Louis uh, protest was Reverend Daryl Gray, who I know, he's a wonderful man, and he was quoted saying, quote, it's not just about Minneapolis, but it is because St. Louis is Minneapolis. It's about everywhere with racist police, end quote. Now, in Ferguson, a group gathered together, and they were going to watch the Minneapolis police, the Minneapolis protest, that is, on the wall of a building with a projector. Um, one person, Yvonne Oliver, was quoted saying, I have nephews, and it could have been any one of them, end quote. And uh, Yvonne Oliver also said, quote, I, in terms of the officer being arrested, quote, I think that charge was just to appease us, thinking we would quiet down. What about the other three officers, end quote? So, you know, once again, it was an active day. And then we have a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Trymaine Lee, who was on MSNBC. And when Chuck Todd asked him about the situation in Minneapolis as he was covering it, he basically just told the truth. You know, he didn't stick to this idea of false objectivity he told the truth about policing in America. You know, he basically said that there's never been a time when police came into white communities and attacked people for the crime of breathing. And he challenged Chuck Todd as well he should. Now, getting through to that, we all know this story. We all know this injustice. There's nothing new. And, and as a Jew myself who has lost relatives in the Holocaust, the police tactics in this country, the constant racist, racist attacks are basically, to me, very reminiscent of what the Nazis did to my people. The only difference being is that the Nazis did it in a few short years, whereas here in the United States, it's done by death of a thousand humiliating cuts. But it's still state-sponsored genocide, no doubt about it. And we cannot remain silent and not help our black brothers and sisters. So. Again, there was some more reporting in The Guardian, and this one it was The Observer, and basically the title is by Tom McCarthy, Police Violence in America, Six Years, 
after Ferguson, George Floyd's killing shows little has changed. And it's true. Little has changed. Um, Once again, you know, this idea that this officer could put a knee on Floyd's neck as a man is saying, I can't breathe. And his crime was he tried, allegedly tried to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. How in the world is that worthy of a death sentence? And, you know, we go on again. And even former President Barack Obama finally said something. He, he was quoted saying, quote, this shouldn't, be the, this shouldn't be normal in 2020 in America. And, you know, he was alluding to another incident where a white woman in Central Park threatened to call the police on a black man who just, uh, you know, happened to be a bird watcher. Uh, Obama was quoted further with that incident saying, quote, we have to remember that for millions of Americans, being treated differently on account of race is tragically, painfully, maddeningly normal, whether it's while dealing with the healthcare system or interacting with the criminal justice system or jogging down the street or watching birds in the park, end quote. The fact is this, Barack Obama unfortunately helped add to this climate. You know, when a Harvard professor was uh, attacked by police for trying to enter his own home, President Obama then had a beer summit. I'm sorry, I wouldn't have attended. Uh, You know, once again, we have this constant replay. Why in the world should people of color have to placate whites that are racist? They just shouldn't. And this is the part that a lot of whites just plain don't get. Van Jones said something that was stronger. He said, quote, the world witnessed a lynching, end quote. And it's true. That is precisely what this was. Nothing has changed. So now a lot of whites are going off on Facebook and other places and complaining that it doesn't justify burning down buildings. Well, this didn't happen overnight. That's the thing. This is something that this civil unrest has been percolating and boiling over for decades now because communities of color, especially the black community, has been forced to suffer daily just for existing and to be abused daily just for existing. So now we have to look at what we call broken windows policing, which Bill Bratton in New York City really pushed. And basically there was an article by Justin Peters in Slate. It's called Loose Cigarettes Today, Civil Unrest Tomorrow. Broken windows policing is this idea that you get on people and you give them a rough time and you abuse people, especially lower income people and minority populations, to prevent other things from happening. So basically, broken windows policing is a policy of state-sponsored terrorism against lower income people and especially against communities of color. There is no other way to put it. And again, the title of this article, Loose Cigarettes, is because Eric Garner was murdered by a police officer for selling loose cigarettes by themselves, which were untaxed. There is no excuse for this. This is just a continuation. I would maintain that the Civil War and the days of slavery never truly ended. They just evolved or morphed into something that was a bit more subtle, but it's still there. Now, the broken windows policing is based on a, a, uh, a writer and a professor, a political scientist named Edward Banfield. And basically, Banfield wrote this, 
book in 1970 called The Unheavenly City, and then a revised edition, The Unheavenly City, revisited. And Banfield basically was speaking in 1970 to the alleged urban crisis with high crime rights, riots, white flight. He said liberalism was to blame. Keep in mind, the oppressive government we now have can only maintain if they maintain fear in the white majority. You know, this country is still majority white. You know, my home state of Missouri is like 95% white. So once again, there's no mystery here. And Banfield has not only a racist, but a classist argument that somehow the poor are immature, undisciplined and inferior to the wealthy. And this, this argument lets the wealthy off the hook when they pay slave wages and abuse workers. And it's a way, Banfield even pushed the idea that higher education, and what he called higher education for the poor, was beyond ninth grade, that it was wasted on the poor who should accept their lot in life as manual workers, receiving slave slave wages with no chance of upward mobility. Banfield also believed that the lower classes of any race had too many civil rights in the 1960s. And his prescription was the formula for mass incarceration, because what Banfield claimed was that since the poor of every race, but especially communities of color, and especially uh, communities uh, brown and black young men, that they were more apt to uh, uh, perform criminal behavior. And so to quote Banfield, quote, so long as there are large concentrations of boys and young men of the lower classes on the street, rampages and forays are to be expected, end quote. And so he went on to say, quote, there are individuals whose propensity to crime is so high, excuse me, that no set of incentives that it's feasible to offer to the whole population would influence their behavior. And so he advocated the preemptive incarceration, in other words, abridge the freedom of mostly young lower class males that might commit crimes. All right, they haven't committed any crimes, but once again, this you can't you almost can't separate racism and classism, but unfortunately, the victims of racism suffer more because they they carry their identity with their physical appearance, whereas somebody who's of lower economic caste can disguise themselves. Uh, you know, as I've said many times before, there are two groups of people in this nation that can never escape uh, this constant abuse, and that is communities of color and women, because both groups carry their identity with their physical appearance. And so Banfield went on to advocate for broken windows, and one of the things was basically force people out of certain neighborhoods. Here in St. Louis, there was an evangelical minister who did do a lot of good. He ran a homeless shelter, and he was forced out of downtown with his homeless shelter by, ironically, a socially liberal Democratic mayor because the gentrified classes didn't like having people that were basically very poor and homeless nearby their loft, um, their loft apartments. So broken windows, broken windows policing is an agent of bigotry. There's no other way to put it. All right. Now, we have to also understand there was a book and an article written by a man named Paul Butler, who was a former prosecutor, a black prosecutor, and he wrote the book called Chokehold, Policing Black Men. 
and he was quoted saying, quote, if police patrolled white areas as they do poor black neighborhoods, there would be a revolution. And he, and he said that U.S. justice is built to humiliate an oppressed black man, and it starts, black men, it starts with the chokehold. And the chokehold is where they grip your neck so tight that it restrains breathing. And if you're left in a chokehold for more than a few seconds, you will die. There's no doubt about it. Now, there was a case in 1976 where Adolf Lyons, 24-year-old black man, pulled over by four L.A. police officers. He had a broken taillight. The cops got out of their squad cars. Guns were drawn. They ordered Lyons to spread his legs. He put his hands on top of his head. After they frisked him, he put his hands down. One cop grabbed him and slammed his slammed him, uh, grabbed his hands and slammed them against his head. And then the police officer tackled Lyons, placed him in a chokehold until he blacked out. So when Lyons actually came to, he regained consciousness. Here he was lying face down on the ground. He'd soiled his pants, and he was spitting up blood and dirt. And the cops gave him a traffic citation and left. So Lyons sued the LAPD about the issue of chokeholds. So the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. This shows what the SCOTUS thinks. The case of Los Angeles v. Lyons. The Supreme Court denied Lyons' claim. And basically the majority of the court said, because Lyons couldn't prove that he would be subject to a chokehold any time in the future, that he had, quote, no personal stake in the outcome, end quote. Now, there was one dissenting voice. Thurgood Marshall, Justice Thurgood Marshall, who was the first black man African-American on the Supreme Court, and Mar- Justice Marshall wrote, quote, it is undisputed that chokeholds pose a high and unpredictable risk of serious injury or death. Chokeholds are intended to bring a subject under control by causing pain and rendering him unconscious. Depending on the position of the officer's arm and the force applied, the victim's, invol- the victim's voluntary or involuntary reaction and his state of health, an officer may inadvertently crush the victim's larynx, trachea, or hyoid. The result may be death caused by either cardiac arrest or asphyxiation. An LAPD officer described the reaction of a person to being choked as, quote, doing the chicken in reference apparently to the reactions of a chicken when its neck is wrong, end quote, from famed Justice Thurgood Marshall. There is no excuse for this. Hillary Clinton spoke out about this, too. She allegedly once asked a room filled with uh, fluent white people to try and imagine how they would feel if they were treated by police and judges the way blacks are treated. How would they feel if police patrolled white communities the way they do black, poor black neighborhoods? She said there'd be a revolution, and she was right. And again, there has not been a single time in American history whether from slavery to Jim Crow to now the mass incarceration and criminalization of blacks, especially young black men, that has not incorporated this systemic abuse. And basically, just it's a, a slow-motion genocide of blacks. It, it's just there. And you know what mr what paul butler quoted saying is basically quote every black man in america faces a symbolic chokehold every time he leaves his home and that is true and this is something that must be remedied in our society in the way our law system works and the chokehold happens everywhere 
It, there is no excuse for this. This is the new Jim Crow, and it must stop. And, you know, progressives need, white progressives need to understand that this is something that is far more serious than what they previously thought. Now, Michael Harriet of The Root gave a timeline of abuse of the black community. So for whites that are still scratching their heads, don't, they're not understanding why buildings are being torched. Again, this is something that's built up for a long time. He traces it from basically the first slave, the first slave police force was actually a bunch of slave catchers. All right, Virginia legislature uh, in 1669 passed a law that basically allowed masters to kill their slaves in the act of punishing them, and that those masters weren't responsible. they, they weren't found guilty of murder at all. Um, South Carolina created the first public police force called Slave Patrols, and their purpose, the first police policing in this country, they were slave patrols, and their purpose was to chase down runaway slaves and also to f- create a climate of systemic organized terror to deter any sort of, of fighting back, any sort of slave revolt, and then to maintain this form of abuse that they call discipline throughout the nation. There's no, this is where policing came from in this country. So again, the white majority ignores these facts. And when they do that, they are guilty by omission because they don't want to know. Uh, this follows through on through Jim Crow, on through Emmett Till in 1955, kidnapped, tortured, killed, wrapped in barbed wire, and thrown into the Tallahatchie River, okay? In 1963, when Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, there's a quote, a part of the speech that's almost never cited, and here's the quote. We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality, end quote. I think that's very self-explanatory. There's no guesswork here. Uh, You know, in 1999, you have four NYPD officers shoot and kill 23-year-old Amadou Diallo. The officers were all acquitted, all right? In 2006, seven undercover NYPD officers basically fired in excess of 50 rounds of ammunition at Sean Bell, who was attending a bachelor party. He was unarmed. The officers were acquitted on all charges. 2012, Trayvon Martin was stopped, chased, shot by George Zimmerman. Um, Even though Zimmerman was told to leave the teenager alone after he called 911, Zimmerman was arrested, but he was later acquitted of murder. It goes on, 2014, New York PD officer Daniel Pantaleo killed Eric Gardner. Pantaleo has never been convicted of any crime. Here in Ferguson, Darren Wilson, Officer Darren Wilson murdered, shot and murdered 18-year-old Mike Brown. Wilson was not charged with a crime. That was basically where the, uh, the, the prosecutor couldn't figure out how to indict him. That's, that's ludicrous. All right, 2015, Freddie Gray was arrested. He carried a knife and he died from injuries while being transported to jail. It goes on and on and on. You cannot shut your your eyes to this, and yet the white majority does just that. 
And here's the thing. You've got Alex Vitali, who is a sociologist that wrote an article in the, in the Guardian. And he basically said the answer to police violence isn't reform. It's defunding. The fact is all the bias training in the world and the body cameras and community dialogues isn't going to change the culture. And part of the problem is that we have pushed all these social needs onto police departments. And, and the result is that we've basically defunded the school, defunded uh, mental health programs, defunded job programs for youth, defunded social services, defunded public transportation. We've defunded um, any sort of legal assistance. And as a result, the police get all the other money. In Minneapolis, they implemented all sorts of reforms. They even wrote a report which focused on procedural justice, both internally and externally, to basically show off all the alleged reforms that they had implemented. Not a single reform worked. This speaks to the difference between procedural justice versus substantive justice and the mission or the function of policing. There's an assumption by many whites that police are neutral and they just enforce the laws. What's the problem? And the fact is there's a lot of laws that are inherently racist, and we don't question the validity of these laws, such as the war on drugs. You know, why should a basic, uh, an affluent white man get off with just a, a rap on the knuckles for doing some lines of cocaine where – a young black man who does um, some crack, 20 years to life in prison. We have to look at questions of substantive justice. We cannot ignore this any longer. We also have to look at the militarization of police. The fact is lo even local activists, activists in Minneapolis have such groups such as Reclaim the Block, Black Visions Collective, and the MPD 150 are calling on Mayor Jacob Fry to defund the police by $45 million and to send those, that money and those resources into what they call, quote, community-led health and safety strategies. Right now, the Minneapolis Police Department takes up approximately 30% of the entire city budget, and that's a big part of the problem because right now they've been diverting money into uh, the police department when it needs to go into the communities. In conclusion, the racism seen in America's police force reflects the demands of America's racist leaders. This racism is inextricably linked to the systematized program engineered to reduce every group of workers into the ranks of the structurally impoverished. This planned impoverishment requires savage policing to enforce this structural economic violence, and racism is the first step in a plan to destroy the remaining weak vestiges of democracy. In short, the black community is the political canary in the coal mine, warning the rest of us of an impending genocide of all those deemed what the Nazis called, quote, useless eaters, end quote. As part of this process, the white majority in the USA has refused to see the structural racism inherent in the process we benignly call policing. The only way racism will be eradicated is, by F is for every white ally to temporarily use their white privilege to protect our beige, brown, and black brothers and sisters. We must destroy the mechanisms that allow racism to flourish. And this begins with restructuring the police 
follow the rule of law and criminally punish those officers that break the law as well as those that cover for the criminals in blue within their own ranks. When we come to the aid of minority communities, we are coming to our own inevitable aid. We can no longer remain silent as the black community is kept in a constant chokehold, which is described by former prosecutor and author Paul Butler. It is the tool of choice for racist cops. The fact is this, the indifference of the white majority is shameful. As a Jew who lost family to the Holocaust, I am quite aware that the Nazi abomination which sponsored a genocide wasn't based on religious differences, but on racism. Jews were considered were not considered white. I can't help wondering if my people, if my people had rioted, perhaps six million wouldn't have had to die. We have a moral duty as allies, as decent human beings to support our black brothers and sisters. Or as Auschwitz survivor and Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel once said, there may be times when we are powerless to prevent injustice, but there must never be a time when we fail to protest. And that's my report. Wow, thank you so much. That was some powerful stuff. And, uh, you know, I wanted to add to, it seems like uh, I was having a look at uh, major news feeds and it does, I, I mean, not not to overstate this, but at least the media is picking up the uh, context and the narrative about yep. um, the police uh, rioting and the police violence. They're starting, to. they're starting to, and I didn't expect that to happen. And then on the downside, I was reminded that, you know, Congress is essentially out on recess until yep. July. So, yep. you know, nothing is going to happen on that front. So, you know, we're, we're kind of out here on our own and, and uh, your report and the, and the, the, the words of wisdom that that you brought tonight were uh, just so important and timely. And um, thank you so much for, for that uh, very, very uh, timely (laughs) and necessary. Thank you, Brooke. All right, Janine, we will talk to you next week and uh, goodness knows what we will have to talk about next week. Um, Everything is just uh, really crazy right now, and uh, we're we're gonna help keep it together. And you know, you guys uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Nashville Brook, and Janine will have her social media presence soon. And uh, we'll see you guys again next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye bye. Jesus wars and racial strife. The next time they will.